Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Great to have you with us. 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. in the wonderful province of Alberta. I always forget what time it is in Saskatchewan because I know that half the year it's in a different time zone than the others. So I just choose. I love Saskatchewan. I've been there several times, but I choose to gloss over it in the time zones. I want to say they're two hours behind, but they may actually be be one hour be to be honest it may be like saturday morning at 4 a.m in saskatchewan who knows these days uh and then if we head over to our wonderful friends in atlantic canada it is uh just 2 p.m in much of the maritimes but of course 2 30 for all you crazy cats in newfoundland so wherever you are in this great country or beyond i welcome you to the show uh you are probably having a better day whoever you are and wherever you are than Anthony Rota, the Speaker of the House of Commons. We spoke about him yesterday. He was the uh, chap who introduced and honored a Canadian hero who happened to be a Ukrainian Nazi veteran on Friday. I mean, who among us has not made that mistake at work? Uh, you know, just the other day on the show, wait, no, I've never done anything like that. But that's what Anthony Rota did on Friday. Yesterday, he had a fair bit of support from the Liberals. They were doing the finger-wagging thing, the I'm disappointed in you thing. And just as a matter of protocol here, if you've ever watched House of Commons proceedings, uh, because perhaps like me, you have no life, you'll know that all comments have to be directed to the speaker. So if you're talking about someone on the other side of the aisle, you don't actually get to say, Justin Trudeau, I think you're a big smelly jerk. You have to say, Mr. Speaker, Justin, or the right honorable prime minister is a big stinky jerk. Uh, so when you're complaining about the speaker, you actually get to talk to the speaker and he's just got to sit there and at the end of it, go, thank you for your comment and move on. So he has had to be bearing these slings and arrows of members of parliament, deservedly so. But what was interesting is how the conservatives were the ones trying to throw him a bone. We saw uh, one such example of this from Chris Warkenton, a conservative MP from Alberta, who was like, I mean, the speaker must have wanted to leap out of his chair and give him a big old hug for this. Mr. Speaker, I, I, I know your desire to take this on, but I don't believe for a second that you went, verified each person, who was invited to this place, verified that they were not a security risk, and then stood at the door and let them in. I know that wasn't the truth. So this attempt by the government to state that this was your doing and your doing alone, that you alone are responsible and that they have bear no responsibility, is to send a signal to all Canadians and all of our allies that we're not serious about anything. Well. I'm not going to take collective responsibility for what, in fact, is the government's responsibility. And, Mr. Speaker, I'd recommend you not do it either. That was Chris Warkenton throwing Anthony Rhoda a bit of a bone there. We also saw a similar comment from Michael Barrett, a Conservative MP, who uh, you may know, uh, you may recall Michael Barrett as the guy that like led the charge on the Wee scandal as the ethics critic, which is a very, I mean, ethics critic used to be a very minor position, but the ethics critic became a pretty important role when you're the official opposition against the Trudeau government. But I digress. Here was Michael Barrett. Time and time again, this Prime Minister and his Liberal House leader say, I had no idea, it didn't involve me. Time 
and time again. This Liberal Prime Minister fails in his duties to Canadians and has someone else take the fall. This week, it looks like he's going to come to you, Speaker, and ask you to leave and to take the garbage out with you on the way out. Is that really what this government wants to show to Canadians? The Honourable Government House Leader. Mr. Speaker, again, that honourable colleague would have seen your statement yesterday, heard your apology in the House today, where the Speaker confirmed that this was his decision and his decision alone to invite this individual from his riding to acknowledge him in the gallery. We were all caught off guard by this. We all stood and applauded because we were led to believe that this was an individual who he was not. And that is something that hurts all of us and embarrasses all of us. But there was no prior knowledge from the government. I, I was going, I, it would have been in poor form given the circumstances, but I was kind of thinking of that old Hogan's Heroes bit. Uh, I won't do the voice because I'm terrible at impressions, but you know, I know nothing, I see nothing. Like that's basically been the liberal government's approach on this, which is that it had nothing to do with it. It doesn't know, uh, who, uh, speaker, what speaker, what Nazi, what not? We, we, were, we just got out of bed one morning and there's this whole controversy and it must have been Anthony Rhoda's fault. And all the liberals who realize they have a bit of egg, in their, egg on their face faces here are saying that, well, you know, maybe people who are being partisan are the real problem. So like I predicted yesterday, it becomes a learning opportunity for all of us. Now, all of this is besides the point in some way. There was a, a thing that happened on Friday that was very disgraceful and very embarrassing. As True North has written about uh, as recently as this morning, you can see it has been a headline around the world. The prime minister who uh, beat, thumped his chest and said Canada's back when he was elected has presided over yet another global laughingstock that is a made in Canada export. You know, we're not exporting a lot of stuff. We're not exporting as much oil, but you better believe we are exporting national shame with abandon. If you could invest in national shame, you'd actually be a very rich person because that stock is getting higher and higher in value with each passing day of this government. Now, this is for a lot of people very challenging. Jews who were trying to uh, commemorate and honor Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, have instead been speaking around their dinner tables and lunch tables about this and about the shame they feel. And I am not Jewish. I know many, many Jewish people, and I have a great many Jewish friends, and I've loved my two times in Israel. And I think these people have been through a fair bit. And the historic trauma they carry about the Holocaust is certainly emblazoned when acts of Holocaust denial or Holocaust diminishment uh, come up, or even ignorant things like this that are re-traumatizing those who have a very deep history with the Nazis for understandable reasons are upset about stuff like this. And no one is defending it. No, I mean, I shouldn't say no one. I mean, you get some people that are saying, well, you know, maybe they're not that bad, but no legitimate voice is defending this. The only question is who is responsible for it. And, uh, you know, one thing that, that is problematic here is that when you have political staffers who have never picked up a book in their lives, have never read anything about history, have apparently never even watched an old war movie rerun on whatever the movie channels are, I don't know, Turner Classic Movies or whatever. Uh, these people, who I don't even know if they get, I don't really watch that myself, so I'm not judging there. But you get these people who know nothing 
nothing about history uh, where anyone could have just uh, looked at this and said, I, so, hang, hang on, fighting against the Soviets in World War II. Okay, something, but maybe I'm just going to Google. 30 seconds of Googling, this problem is solved unless as Ezra Levant purported uh, yesterday, this was not an accident at all, but was perhaps something more intentional. Who knows? As I said on the show, this is really taking the enemy of my enemy is my friend to new extremes here when someone is honoring a Nazi just because they happen to be against the people who are today's bad guys in Russia. Now, one thing I'll point out from Karina Gould here that I think is particularly disgraceful is that she, as the liberal house leader, decided the answer to what happened was to erase it from history. You think I'm joking? Watch this. I'd like to ask for unanimous consent to adopt the following motion. That notwithstanding any standing order, special order, or usual practice of the House, the recognition made by the Speaker of the House of an individual present in the galleries during the joint address to Parliament by His Excellency Volodymyr Zelensky be struck from the appendix of the House of Commons debates of Thursday, September 21st, 2023, and from any House multimedia recording. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Oh, yes, uh, the I guess we have to go to the, uh, we'll ask about unanimous consent and go to it. Uh, all those opposed to the Honourable uh, Ministers moving the motion will please say nay. We don't, we don't have unanimous consent. This may seem like a bit of parliamentary theatrics, but what happened here is the Liberal House leader introduced a motion to go back to the Hansards, which is the official record of every word uttered in the House of Commons going back to Confederation in 1867. And she wanted to have that edited out. Edited out. So if you were to read through it, there would basically be a gap and nothing would have happened. It was as though nothing, it was that it would never, never took place. And even the official parliamentary video record, it would be edited out. So you'd be scrolling through and there'd be like a 30 second jump there. And you'd wonder, oh my goodness, what was that? Maybe there was a tech glitch, but that's what they wanted to do. Uh, talk about Orwellian censorship to go back and cover up this disgraceful episode by pretending it never happened. This is not the first time this has taken place. You may recall a few years back, I believe it was 2019, or it may have been 2018. It was 2018, actually. There was a debate on Parliament Hill in a committee on online hate, and I was there covering it. Mark Stein, my colleague Lindsay Shepard, and John Robson were the witnesses. And at the beginning of their session, there was a motion introduced to rip, to literally rip out of the Hansards, to rip out of the record something that happened at the previous meeting, which was a Conservative MP, Michael Cooper, quoting from the New Zealand mosque killers manifesto to make a point. Now, I can't even remember what the point was or what the excerpt was, but he did it. He was denounced and that was that. And people could see what he said, they could see the denunciation, and they could decide for themselves in the full context what the appropriate response was. But what the committee members did was expunge that from the record. So if you go back now, they've actually changed history. They have changed the audio and video feed of that meeting. They've changed the written transcript and have removed it. 
Now, fortunately, in this day and age, people like me have captured and transcribed these things before they can do it. We would have had a video clip that we could have shared. But in the official record, if you are a historian 50 years ago looking for a debate that took place in Parliament Hill, you would have an amended version. And I know I'm focusing a lot on this, but you cannot actually not, in my view, overstate the significance of a government whose response to a shameful display like this is to pretend it never happened, that believes the antidote to a wrong is to rewrite history and make an erasure of this nature rather than to own up to it and to be held to account for it, which uh, in some people's minds will be solved if Anthony Rhoda tenders his resignation, as I'm hearing some sources say could be coming as quickly as at 2 o'clock Eastern today, so in about 45 minutes. Uh, let's talk about this in a bit more detail here. Aaron Woodrick joins me. He is the Domestic Policy Director for the McDonald laurier Institute, and it's always good to talk to him. Uh, Aaron, Nazi on the floor of the House of Commons, or I guess in the gallery, not something either of us would have had on our bingo cards, was it? No, I mean, this is just a colossal mess. And obviously, the Trudeau government has no shortage of problems on its plate right now. So this is really not something that they needed today. Um, look, I'm put me in the camp of saying that uh, the speaker needs to resign on this, right? I just want to point a principle. And this is something that's been absent from this government, because let's, I mean, the speaker does have a degree of independence, but he is still a liberal MP. Um, and this government has continually dodged what's known as ministerial responsibility, you know, you know, it used to be, Andrew, that when you wanted to take responsibility, there had to be some consequence, right? You had to pay some price. You had to resign. Um, now there, you just say the words, I take full responsibility, and it's supposed to go away. And I think a lot of people think that's very hollow. And so the point here is, you know, I don't believe for a second that uh, Anthony Rhoda deliberately, you know, found this guy or even had any idea really who he was. But that's not the point. The point is that someone needs to be held responsible. And in our system of government, whether it's the speaker, whether it's a minister, when your staff or someone below you screws up, you have to fall on your sword. That's the price you pay. It doesn't matter that it wasn't your fault directly in the sense that you didn't do something deliberately wrong. You have to you have to pay the price. And I think, as you as already mentioned, now even liberals are coming out and saying they don't know how he can continue. So I think he will go. I don't know that's going to put an end to it because, of course, the conservatives are going to assert that PMO knew. Um, I don't I don't know either way whether they did. But it again, is it's certainly in keeping with the pattern where this government uh, wants to always throw someone else under the bus and say we had nothing to do with it. It's not our fault. That's just the way they operate. And, th and this situation is no different. Yes, and we certainly see the Liberal government here being very convenient in its detachment of the Speaker as a Liberal member of Parliament mm -hmm. from the Liberal Party and, and Liberal government. I mean, yes, the Speaker of the House of Commons is a, a non, an ostensibly nonpartisan role, and the Speaker is supposed to preside over debates fairly and, and even-handedly. But at the end of the day, this is a man elected as a Liberal member of Parliament. And when it was expedient for the Liberals to just throw him under the bus, their point was to stress the independence of the role, the independent Speaker of the House. I think it was sure. the Prime Minister's office had uh, called had, or had uh, referred to him as in its statement. Yeah, it, it's it's very convenient now, right? Uh, so th th again, but that's it's par for the course for this government. You know, I, I did want to uh, play devil's advocate a bit on one thing, Andrew, and that is sort of people saying, how could people have missed this? Because you had, you know, uh, you have the speaker, the real problem is that he was recognized in parliament, right? The speaker chose to recognize this person. Um, and in a way, it's a really unfortunate series of events.
the only reason this person is there is because he happens to be a constituent of the speaker, right? The speaker represents North Bay, Ontario riding. This, this guy lives in North Bay. Apparently his son asked the speaker if he could come. So, you know, it is, uh, it is a little bit unfortunate that nobody did their homework, but the thing is people say, well, how could, how could you, you know, knowingly, um, uh, you know, applaud a Nazi? Well, I would say this, Andrew, in 2023, if someone said, you know, it's a, we have a veteran here who is in the Ukrainian first division who fought the, the, the Russians, you know, that sounds kind of, if you're, if you're a young person in 2023, there's nothing offensive about that. Of course, if you say they, they were an SS member who fought the Allies in the Second World War, that is obviously a problem, but that's that's not the way it was phrased. So I think the language played a big role here is that, you know, if, if people had used the right terminology, and, and as you said earlier, if people had just done a little bit of digging saying, okay, Ukrainian First Division, what is that, right? That, that could mean something very different in 1944 than it does in 2023. And I think that was the big mistake. Someone did just not connect the dots and say, this person was a literal, you know, Nazi. Uh, I, I simply think that nobody bothered to check. Yeah, and I mean, and if you look up the history of it, the first Ukrainian division was a bit of a rebranding to, as yeah. I've understood, distance from the SS Waffen name. So, yes. I mean, that name is itself a, a euphemism. And I, I wanted to go back to that comment you made about, you know, just saying you take responsibility doesn't mm. actually amount to it. Uh, pardon the pop culture insertion here, but it reminded me of, of this moment. I... Declare bankruptcy! Hey, I just wanted you to know that you can't just say the word bankruptcy and expect anything to happen. I didn't say it, I declared it. Still. So that's basically what the speaker has done here, isn't it? It is, but and I, you know, I mentioned other ministers in this government have done the same thing, where they, if, if at first they deny or deflect, eventually they say, well, you know what, I accept full responsibility. And then as soon as the reporter says, well, what does that mean? The response is, well, it means I accept full responsibility. That's 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 all it is. I, I, and I, I think that you know we talk a lot these days, Andrew, about declining trust and cynicism in public, and I think this contributes to it, right? Like in the real world, if you make a mistake, there's usually some consequence or some punishment or something. It's not just you know if you're a kid, you get grounded. Um, you you know you lose your allowance or you get fired or you get suspended or you get your pay docked. What what is what is a minister in the, in the Trudeau government or the speaker in this case? What is the price they're paying? What is the consequence? Uh, there is none, and I think that's why most people think it, it, it's a pretty hollow thing to just use the words. Well, and I would also point out here that. The, these sorts of blunders on a rather epic scale are, are not really out of character for this government now. And I, you know, I mentioned when we were talking about the India stuff, which was, you know, the biggest story in the world for a week before this thing came up. There is something to this government, I think, about it having really surrendered the right to get the benefit of the doubt. And, and I really think because of its conduct and its history of these sorts of things, when something like this arises, people are not really willing to give them that benefit of the doubt anymore. Yeah, I agree. And look, I, there are people that uh, won't like this government because of the policy choices they make. I certainly have been a big critic of most of the policy decisions of this government. But more fundamentally, there's a competence issue, right? And, and I think, uh, you know, and you've even heard liberals, especially ones who've parted this government, say so out loud is that, you know, the prime minister has a very small circle of people, in some cases, maybe even one person now in the form of Katie Telford, um, that are basically trying to run the whole country. And it's a, it's a bit of a bottleneck, to say the least, when you 
you have everything having to flow up this very narrow bottleneck. And that leads to these kinds of things, all kinds of decisions that aren't getting treated very seriously or in a timely way. So aside from your policy differences, if you don't like what this government's doing, there's just a basic competence issue. Um, they're just not able to deal with things because, uh, because of this bottleneck problem. Just moving forward here, I, I mentioned a, a few moments ago, I, I've heard reports that uh, the speaker could resign a, as quickly as at uh, 2 p.m. today. So coming up in about 40 minutes and, and the resignation, I've been told, will uh, effectively come into force on Thursday. So I guess then there's a bit of time to have a an election for another speaker. But he has a garden party happened, tonight too, I mean, Andrew. The liberals are banking on them being able to really contain this crisis to this guy alone. If he's no longer speaker, he sits in the Liberal caucus. Like, all of a sudden, he's a colleague of theirs in a more literal and clear-cut way. Yeah, so that's going to be another question. You say, well, he's independent. Now he's back in your caucus. What uh, What are you going to do? Although, I am interested to see, you know, how far the opposition parties will pursue that. You know, I, 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 you can argue the Conservatives are making the point on principle, saying, well, don't take all the blame. It's also clear they want the Prime Minister's head on this, right? I mean, at the end of the day, if you're not a fan of the Prime Minister, you'll any excuse will do to see the back of them, and this would be as good as any. So I, I, I fully expect that the people that are, you know, uh, not fans of Trudeau are, are not going to let this drop. Yeah, and I think one of the big things that we will uh, have to say, I mean, for just for starters, uh, we put up this poster, we can put up this poster we have, this was the invitation that was sent out to that speaker's garden party uh, tonight, 6pm to 9pm at uh, 15 Barnes Road, I'm only comfortable giving the address because it's already publicly out there and there's a gate, so don't try to crash that party, but uh, so far I was looking as recently as uh, this afternoon right before I went on air, not been cancelled, I don't know how many people are showing up though. Yeah, talk about the worst garden party of all time. I mean, that's going to be a real awkward one, especially if the speaker who invited people is no longer speaker by six o'clock tonight, by which I think there's a there's decent odds that's the case. So, uh, look, this is just a, this is this is a disaster all around. Um, I, 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 I mean, I'm not privy to the details about who actually knew what, but there are definitely going to be consequences uh, that flow from this. It's not going to be the sort of thing that the government can just turn the page on. Aaron Woodrick is the Domestic Policy Program Director at the McDonald-Laurier Institute. Thanks so much, Aaron. Always a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Andrew. That was Aaron Woodrick. Now, let me point out here that, you know, I think Anthony Rhoda does deserve a, a fair bit of the blame here. I, I don't believe that uh, he is just a puppet in some decision that was orchestrated by Justin Trudeau. I do believe, however, that uh, the Justin Trudeau government, the Liberal Party, uh, has to take ownership over Anthony Rhoda. He is one of their members of parliament. And this was an event that was not strictly a House of Commons event. This was an event that in actuality was being orchestrated by the Protocol Office, by Global Affairs Canada. It was a, a visit by a foreign head of state, by Volodymyr Zelensky, who was in the House of Commons. And as I mentioned yesterday, has now given Vladimir Putin like the biggest propaganda win because the Russians have been saying since the invasion started in 2022 that Nazis are basically running rampant in Ukraine. And now here we have the president of Ukraine uh, in the House of Commons of Canada applauding a guy who was a Nazi. Nazi veteran himself. And this is not the kind of like when when I first saw this, because I, I didn't get a chance to watch the whole thing on Friday live. So when this first came up, I was seeing on Twitter on the weekend, 
and I was like, surely there's some like people torque stuff. And I was looking, surely this isn't as it's being described. And then you look in and I saw Ezra's uh, Levant's Twitter thread. And then I saw a piece in Forward, again, an American Jewish publication. And then beyond that, I started to look into it myself and realize this is exactly as it's being described here. And uh, this was not just a speaker's problem because, like I said, it is the whole government that right now was involved in this. And uh, the government has been very conveniently trying to say, oh, well, the speaker's independent. And okay, well, once he resigns, he's going to be one of your caucus members. So what is the conduct that you expect of the people who are sitting in your caucus? And uh, maybe they'll just go to the next level and say, we have to kick Anthony Rota out of caucus. But again, they're doing everything in their power to draw a line between them and him. They're trying everything to make it so that he is not the guy responsible. And that is something that I don't think will necessarily hold. And to be honest, this is one of these cross-partisan issues where it's breaking out into the mainstream discourse, people that aren't specifically partisans that are none too pleased with what the government has done here. Turning to another issue, you may recall last week we spoke to Rod Giltaka, who is the uh, head of the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. The uh, backdrop of the discussion was the looming deadline for the so-called amnesty period that the federal government has for newly banned guns coming to an end in just about a month and a week. So maybe five and a half weeks or so until about 1,500 variants of firearms, including AR-15s and Mini-14s that were banned in May of 2020 by order and council are going to be no more. Uh, they're right now, uh, if you owned one before that order and council came in, you've had it locked in your safe. You've not been able to take it out. You've not been able to take it to the range to sell it. And the government's so-called buyback, which let's be real, is a confiscation scheme, hasn't happened. So I have an AR-15. I have not been able to ever fire it. And the government says that it's so unsafe it should be in their hands. Well, I've not been able to put it in their hands because this program does not exist. I wanted to shine a light on another dimension of this, which I don't often do on this show because when I talk about gun issues, usually I'm talking about them from the perspective of gun owners. But just to set the stage, gun businesses were also severely affected by this. And I wanted to play a clip before we get into this segment too deeply from a documentary I produced in May. Well, it came out in the summer of 2021. So just after the one year anniversary of the order in council, and it was called Assaulted, Justin Trudeau's War on Gun Owners. And in this, I took a look specifically in one of the episodes at firearms businesses. And uh, this one in particular, this clip that I'm going to show, spoke about two businesses that were at the time dealing with this for over a year and are in the exact same position nearly two years later. Take a look. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go 
down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. How is a business like yours supposed to operate when anything that you sell could one day be illegal? On eggshells, take it a day at a time. I visited Jeff's store one year after the Liberals' order in council, and there in his warehouse were tens of thousands of dollars of now prohibited firearms. They're illegal to sell or to use and cannot even be sold back to the government despite the promise of a buyback. It's a rule of retail. If you're not moving inventory, you're losing money. Something felt by a lot of the gun store owners I heard from is that this is a feature, not a bug, of the Liberals' gun measures. You know, we're, we're sitting on inventory right now that we can't sell, and that's tying up a lot of dollars, which in retail is, is a cardinal sin. The, the biggest sin in retail is not to turn your inventory over. Um, so, you know, it, it's created some financial hardship, and, uh, but I, I try not to complain about it too much because I know I'm not alone. I know that every other business, whether you're a wholesaler or a distributor in the country, has been affected. Um, I liken it to the automotive industry. And imagine you own a car lot and Environment Canada walks onto your lot one day and says, we're banning V8s. And by the way, you can't sell them. They have to sit on your lot. And maybe someday, two or three, maybe four years down the road, we might pay you cost, we might pay you retail, or we just might be a flat amount we're going to give you. But in the meantime, all the parts that you have for them and your vehicles are tied up. So as retailers and wholesalers, that's where we're at right now. Our inventory is tied up. We can't sell it. Your entire business model has been destroyed. And there's a lot of people out there, unfortunately, in this country who are in that situation right now because of the OIC. The first gentleman was Jeff Toombs, who has a store near Peterborough, Ontario. I haven't chatted with him too recently, but Scott Carpenter, who has a, a store in Surrey, I ran into him at an event uh, not that long ago, and he said that the inventory that he was talking about when I spoke to him there is still in his warehouse. This is an issue that has saddled gun stores with, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars of inventory that they cannot move. And even outside of those specific prohibitions, it is an uncertainty that has now affected this where why would you run a business when the government could ban the things that you are trying to sell I, I wanted to talk about this issue a little bit more from the perspective of the industry itself which by the way is not dominated by these big multinational billion dollar corporations it's often small mom and pop shops across this country Wes Winkle is here he's the president of the Canadian Sporting Arms and Ammunition Association Wes it's good to talk to you thanks for coming on today thank you very much for having me just set the stage here first off. I alluded to it there, but what is the profile of a, a firearms business owner in Canada? Uh, typically, you hit the nail right on the head. It's uh, it's one of those things where most of them are mom and pop shops. Uh, typically, you're looking at a, uh, an employee base of five to 12 employees. Um, in many cases, a rural uh, business or uh, in a non-urban area is where most of our businesses are located. One of the things I should point out, when I was filming uh, that documentary in which your your predecessor in, in your position was a, a featured guest, uh, one of the challenges whenever we were interviewing owners of gun stores is that every five minutes someone's walking in and they were old friends, they knew each other. I mean, these things have actually become somewhat of community hubs as well, your neighborhood gun store for people that are in sport shooting and in hunting. and And that's not something that a lot of businesses in this day and age get to do. 
No, it's it's a very unique situation. It's uh, we always uh, like it that old hot stove league mentality, where you have a a lot of folks coming in on a regular basis to um, to go ahead and um, you know chew the fat about the, their their event and their sport, and they like to come in and talk about it. And it's it's a very small, close knit community for sure, uh, and it crosses a lot of different. Uh, uh, realms of employment you know there's there's people that are farmers and and rural uh, uh shooters and hunters but then you have lots of uh urban uh, gentlemen that are and ladies that participate in law enforcement and the military that like to practice their their, their craft outside of their work so there's a lot of different uh, aspects at play so i know that the the handgun ban uh when i believe we we lost you uh so we'll have to to get west back there i'm speaking to half of my there we go i was speaking to half of my logo there uh, i know that the handgun ban was actually quite a boon for gun stores i know gun stores all of a sudden couldn't like sell handguns quickly enough because there was a, a bit of a phase in period but but for the order and council this uh, effectively locked up huge amounts of inventory that i mean it, certainly in the cases of, of businesses i've spoken to they've not been able to do anything with for uh effectively three years now like what are the effects of that if you're a gun retailer uh they're immense uh, just like you had mentioned in your previous segment about uh, stale inventory and stale inventory is the death of retail as a whole but on top of that you have costs associated with it not just warehousing costs and holding costs but insurance costs uh you know for a lot of us that are holding hundreds of thousands of dollars in inventory, it costs you ten thousands of dollars a year to insure that inventory, especially when the government puts a prohibited tag name on it. So uh, it's a very expensive thing to keep in our inventory, and and we've had no ability to have a lawfully uh, or a legal aspect to dispose of this inventory, and it's got a great deal of expense as well as taking up very valuable warehouse and retail space. Has there been in the members that you've spoken to a, a sense that it's just not worth it anymore? Like, why would I spend so much of my time, effort and money in this industry that the government could basically outlaw overnight? Absolutely. There's been a fatigue. We've seen a lot of businesses in the last six months across our great country close. And it's it's a combination of uh, financial viability, but just overall fatigue of overregulation. It's not just uh, on the firearm side, but on the ammunition side, the regulations when it comes to importing and exporting. I mean, we're just so heavily regulated that it, yeah, there's a level of fatigue and, and you're in a situation where, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of these owners are a little older and therefore it's, uh, you know, it's a little bit harder for them to maintain uh, keeping up with all these online regulations and constantly being on the internet and logging to the RCMP website and giving permission to sell stuff. It just gets uh, difficult and they just uh, get worn down and, and re retire from our industry. In terms of representing the industry side, your uh, group is pretty much unparalleled, I, I would go so far as to say. So has there been at the very least consultation or adequate consultation from the government on what a resolution would look like? Yes, we've had some consultation. Uh, we didn't have any consultation before the OIC, but then which we is ideally when you consult before you do something. Absolutely, and and to be honest, uh, the OIC is so poorly written, which is why we've had this long delay and why there's so much, uh, you know, it's so difficult to bring this program forward because we're really at a spot yet where we still haven't quite determined what actually was prohibited. You know, you mentioned at the start of your segment at 1,500 makes and models, and that was what was originally listed by the government. But then they've added on 300, 354 makes and models that they found out were caught under the same net as the original prohibition. 
So we're still trying to determine what exactly was prohibited because it was so poorly written by the uh, Minister Blair in his office at the time. And again, if there had been consultation back before this, there may have not have been quite such a mess. But now, of course, uh, we're, we're uh, stuck trying to figure out how to deal with this regulation. And uh, we're currently going through that. Now there is some consultation, but, uh, you know, the slow <laughs> turning wheels of the government are very difficult to fight through, especially when you have such a convoluted program. One thing a lot of people don't understand about these firearms is they're so modular in nature and there's so many different moving pieces and they're kind of like a, a Mr. Potato Head of guns type of thing where you're putting different, snapping different pieces on. And some of those pieces are prohibited, some of them are not, but some of them can be used in other firearms, some of them can't. And therefore, they're trying to figure out how to how to properly gather all the information that is required there. Yeah, and I was actually going to ask about that because, you know, there certainly is a huge, huge market for accessories for firearms. And I've not been told, and you may have a different uh, perspective of this, but I've not been told that a gun buyback would extend to accessories. So there may be a, no real way to recoup that money. Well, so uh, again, we only get to deal with the business aspect. We have no interest or no communication on the uh, on the individual buyback. Yeah, uh, I, you know? I mean, from a business perspective, if you have a bunch of accessories in your warehouse, which maybe you can return to the distributor, but maybe you can't. I mean, there may be no compensation for that and no retail market for it now. Yeah, no, there, there and there has been extensive consultation on the on the um, on all the parts and the different components of the firearms. Uh, there has been an extensive discussion going on about that. Uh, obviously, um, uh, from our dealer's perspective, uh, because so many of these things are modular in nature, we wouldn't be a part of anything if the, if the parts and accessories were not included. So uh, we've been a uh, large discussion on how those parts will be compensated for, especially from those of, uh, of our members that are manufacturers. You know, they don't want to have to take the time to assemble these firearms to, to be turned in. It makes no sense whatsoever to put that extra expense on there. So, uh, you know, they have bins and bins of parts of these manufacturers and they need to be compensated for as well. Just in closing here, I'll ask you, Wes, about what the dollar value would be. Not, not an individual dollar value, but in general, the approach to a dollar value would be that would take the sting out a little bit. Because if the government were to say, we'll reimburse you for the cost you purchased this at to businesses, that doesn't really take into account the warehousing, the opportunity cost, you know, if they had to, you know, take out debt, for example, to buy the inventory in the first place. Uh, but I also don't think government really wants to be enriching or in its view, enriching business owners by paying a premium. Like what would the reasonable middle ground be? Well, there's probably, uh, you know, what is the current retail value of that item is probably where the current middle ground is. You know, it absolutely does not compensate us for our losses. You know, whenever you have inventory tied up for three years, there should be six to 12 turns on that on that inventory. And we're not going to get compensated for that. And we're well aware of that. But uh, at the same time, uh, storage and, and insurance costs aren't being co compensated either. So our losses are still going to be immense. But, uh, you know, the middle ground that uh, I am assuming we're going to hopefully end up at is is the retail value for the items. Um, and, uh, you know, that um, remains to be seen if that's where they go. But it, it still won't take the sting out of it. And uh, especially the, the biggest cost that our businesses have is the is the training of staff. It's the marketing that's. Oh, uh, we I think we you muted yourself there, Wes. I apologize. There we go. We uh, got you now. <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, some technical stuff there. Uh, but yes, we have uh, so much invested in the marketing and, and the training of our staff. 
and the sting of that will never go away. Uh, it's it's something that uh, you know businesses had tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars invested in, and that's all out the window, and, and it's an absolute collapse of that part of the industry. Wes Winkle is the president of the Canadian Sporting Arms and Ammunition Association. I thank you for uh, making your way through the tech issues there. Right? Uh, you, yeah. you solved them better than anyone else uh, we have on the show is usually able to. So thanks very much, Wes. Good to talk to you. All right. And no of course, we thank ended you, you on mute. I jinxed it there. But in any event, it was good to uh, talk to Wes. And uh, let me yeah. say that, you know, I, I remember there was one interview. Uh, you should go back and watch Assaulted. I, I'm very proud of that. It's at assaulted.ca. And there was one couple I spoke to, Wyatt and Shana Singer. This, again, husband and wife couple with a, a beautiful, beautiful young son that lives on this great property out in rural Alberta. And they just started in their shop a firearms manufacturing business because they wanted to design a non-restricted firearm that would suit their needs. And it was entirely modular. They designed it to the letter of the regulation to be non-restricted. And they invested their life savings in this. They learned machining. They bought a bunch of equipment. They did so much. And they made this to follow the letter of the law and the letter of the regulations. And then the government just flips the switch and prohibits it. It basically uh, eliminated the only product this couple sold. And I showed this to a couple of people I know that are not fans of firearms. And uh, one of them in particular had said, well, I don't like guns, but I can't believe what they've done to that couple. And that to me is a win. And I think it's important for gun owners to accept that, as I said in my keynote speech at the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights, AGM, which you can watch online a couple of months back, you know, people that don't like guns are, are not going to be wooed over by arguments about how uh, owning guns should be a right. They're going to be wooed over, though, by human stories. And when people see what the government's approach to this has done to ordinary people, to ordinary business owners that could own a bookstore or a gourmet food store or a firearm store or a lawnmower store, it doesn't matter. Uh, people start to realize at the very least the injustice in how it's being done, in, in how the government has just uh, kicked people in this industry because it's decided that it can paint for political points gun owners as villains. So we'll leave it there. My thanks to all of you for tuning in. We'll be back with more of The Andrew Lawton Show and uh, perhaps a new Speaker of the House uh, tomorrow. Well, we probably won't get a new Speaker until Thursday, but I will tell you also the event of the century I'm going to be overly ambitious there, is True North Nation. It is coming to Calgary October 21st, which is a Saturday. It's going to be a full-day event. I'll be there. Rupa Subramanian will be there. Harrison Faulkner, Rachel Emanuel, and a very, very, very special guest that we will be announcing this week. So you might want to book your ticket now by trusting me that it's going to be a good guest before things sell out, because I think they may sell out once we announce this person. So uh, that is coming up, and I do hope to see you all there. We will talk to you tomorrow though thank you god bless and good day to you all thanks for listening to the andrew lawton show support the program by donating to true north at www.tnc.news